You are listening to Soul Searching on KSFR with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom. Soul Searching is a journey where I engage with faith leaders and academics to explore deep questions of meaning. Questions that all of us ask at some point in our lives, such as, why are we here? What is right and wrong? Is there good and evil? Is truth relative or absolute? Is there life after death? And to help us in our journey this evening, we're very honored to be joined by Father Robin Dodge from the Church of the Holy Faith in Santa Fe. Father Robin, welcome. Thank you, Rabbi Neil. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. So what is the Episcopal Church and and how does it differ from other Christian denominations? The Episcopal Church is the expression of Anglicanism um, on these shores. Um, We were descended from, um, well, we're in communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury. Uh, who's the titular head of the Church of England. And uh, we are descended from uh, the Church of England. Our historic roots uh, in the American colonies was when the settlers came over from England. They brought their religion uh, with them, mm-hmm. uh, especially in Virginia, not so much in Massachusetts. They were um, a different breed of, uh, of Christians. But uh, as uh, more and more English people came. They brought the Church of England with them, and that was all fine until the unpleasantness that uh, some referred to as the War of Independence or Mm -hmm. the Revolutionary War, and it was not so great to be called the Church of England on these shores any longer. So the church was reconstituted as the Episcopal Church and is one of about 39 autonomous provinces within the Anglican Communion, all in um, communion with the Archbishop of Canterbury, Mm -hmm. but also sharing a common um, religious tradition using some form of the Book of Common Prayer, which uh, originated back in uh, in England with the um, English Reformation. The Episcopal Church, as part of Anglicanism, is a uh, middle way, a via media between Roman Catholicism mm-hmm. and Protestantism. We consider ourselves different from other Protestants because although we had a Reformation, it was, uh, to begin with, a political uh, right. Reformation right. because of Henry VIII um, and his desire to be head of the church for mm-hmm. all sorts of particular reasons. Um, other monarchs had always wanted to be head of the church. Henry VIII had his specific reasons for being um, head of the church rather than having the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, as head of the church. And so ours uh, was a liturgical um, reformation, uh, a political reformation before a liturgical reformation. So we look a lot like Roman Catholics in mm-hmm. our worship and in our the way we govern ourselves and uh, the way we... Uh, view the sacraments, mm-hmm. but then we also look a lot like our Protestants, bro- Protestant brothers and sisters and uh, how we regard the authority of Scripture and, um, and the Bible. Um, and so we're, I like to think, the best of both worlds. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So um, since you mentioned the authority of Scripture, what, what does that mean for you? Um, does that mean everything in the Bible is historically true? What, what is that? We believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God, and uh, so we take uh, the Bible very seriously as authoritative. Uh, In our understanding, in our catechism, uh, we say that all things um, necessary, um, all things necessary for salvation are contained in the Bible, which 
does not mean that all things contained in the Bible are necessary for salvation. Okay. Um, and so um, we don't get into the nitty-gritty of saying everything is historically true, has historically happened. Um, we understand that uh, some, all sorts of genres of literature are contained in, in the Bible, and some are metaphor, and some are ways of explaining things. But we also understand that um, the Bible is a guide uh, for our lives, and uh, as the inspired Word of God, we have to take it seriously. Well, what does that mean, it's um, a guide for our lives? For example, I was just studying with a bar mitzvah student the stoning of the rebellious child and the um, the burning of the idolatrous city. We were just we were just looking at those the other day. I, I would not encourage students to do that. Um, so what does it mean for it to be a guide for our lives if there are some passages in it which are extremely problematic in the modern mindset? There are plenty of passages that are problematic and I think we try to see how those particular passages reveal the essence of who God is and, um, and what kind of God, how people have related to God over, over time, and use that in our own lives to see how we might, uh, under similar circumstances, relate to God and how God is revealing God's self to us. Uh, these days. So uh, that leads me, I guess, to, to a question about how we talk about God um, and, and how God reveals God's self to us. Because on your community website, you talk of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And um, and I have researched with friends and I have explored. And, and I think it's it's fair to say I've never really understood what that means. So without putting too much pressure on you, as compared <laughs> with all other clergy colleagues, what does it mean to you? And I'm not trying to get you to get me to fully understand because I, for me, I, I, I guess my challenge comes right at the very beginning from a Deuteronomic perspective, Adonai Echad, God is one. Mm-hmm. So, so what does it mean for you for God to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Uh, I personally understand God as one, but in three persons, three expressions. Um, bottom line is that God as the holy and blessed trinity is a mystery and we have to just <laughs> but I know that's a cop out you, you, you said the word I was about to say right <laughs> and in fact you know we have a, um, a great feast day um, every year uh, the Sunday uh, after the feast of Pentecost which is the feast of the holy trinity mm-hmm. where um, it's every priest's fear that they're going to be assigned to have to preach that Sunday and somehow you know, expound upon what the meaning of the Blessed Trinity is. Um, luckily, if you are a rector like I am, you usually put you that Sunday assign. assigned to the assistant, <laughs> and that's always the joke that the assistant. But no, uh, seriously, it's it's the Christian perspective of who God is. I, I mean, I would say um, I understand for you in the and and Jewish tradition, it would be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I mean, that's that's a name, that's a, right. um, a formula for understanding who God is. For us as Christians, God is Father. The first person of the Trinity is Father, God, Creator, um, if you want. The second person is the is Jesus. Is the the second person of the Trinity is the Logos, and Jesus is the enfleshed mm-hmm. person uh, of the Logos who revealed God's self when 
Jesus came to earth and walked on the earth. And then the Holy Spirit was the expression of God uh, at Pentecost and thereafter when Jesus was no longer walking on the earth, but God mm -hmm. gave us God's spirit in order to lead us into all truth. Um, so um, it's better to say it's a mystery, but my <laughs> understanding easier to say it's it a is mystery. much easier. Um, but it's, it's a way of uh, getting a human head around who God is. Well, it's interesting you should use that language because I was going to ask, it's all very anthropomorphic. It's all very much God as represented in a human way. Um, and what does that mean for those who don't see God in an anthropomorphized way? Do they have a place in the church? How does that work for oh, them? Oh, ab absolutely. Um, everyone has a, a place in the church and especially a place in the Episcopal church. Um, but it's... Uh, you know, I think the only construct we have to work with is is because God transcends any sort of human imagination and human comprehension that the only tools we have are to, to make some sort of human characteristics so that we can just begin to get a sense of, of, um, of who God is. I, I would agree from our tradition, the Jewish tradition, we have this idea that the Torah speaks in the language of man. Mm -hmm. um, so whenever it talks about God, it talks about God using terms that we could understand. Although it's very interesting for me that it's the language of man. It's very male-dominated. Yes. If these are all metaphors, um, if we are trying to describe the indescribable with words that make sense to us, how do Father, Son, and Holy Spirit remain as opposed to Mother I don't know. I mean, because obviously being represented in the flesh in a male form connects or ties the gender specifically to the son. To the son, yes. But, but why does father remain if, if it's just words trying to explain the indescribable? Could it not be different words? Well, that formula is historic and traditional. It is, um, stems from Jesus' prayer when he would pray to his Father. And in Scripture, we hear Jesus praying to Father. Mm -hmm. And so we use that. But we certainly believe that God is neither male nor female. We go back to Genesis. And uh, uh, we know that uh, we are created in God's image. And that uh, in the beginning, God created humankind. And God created them male and female. Mm -hmm. And so um, I prefer to use... Um, expansive language right. for God rather than, um, than exclusive language or interpretive language. It's uh, uh, God is God and, and beyond anything that we might, the labels that we might put on, on God. And I guess that's part of my, my difficulty uh, with, with this concept, um, which I think I don't quite, as I say, I don't quite fully understand because if we are to use expansive language of God but have a particular rubric for mm -hmm. it and we say well, but this is how we traditionally do it then how do we hold that tension of the inclusivity with the tradition um, because I mean it's interesting for me I, I tend to try to talk about God as God not as he for example um, but so I can understand people in Jewish tradition some will refer to God see God more as as male and patriarchal and dominating even and and some will see God as feminine and Shekhinah the, the feminine presence of God some will take Hamakom the idea of God as place God as presence um, 
I feel like I have more freedom with that. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I'm, I guess the question for me is, how do you express the fr- your freedom, your religious freedom that you're talking about, the expansiveness of language of God through those three terms to st- as a starting point? Where do you go from there, I guess? Well, and I think some people would see the Holy Spirit as perhaps a more feminine expression of, of the Godhead. Um, and... Um, because we have that formula, there are different ways that uh, you know, people can connect with God. You know, if you've had a bad relationship with your father and you understand mm-hmm. God solely as father, that can be problematic. Um, right. uh, Jesus was clearly male, mm-hmm. um, but um, Jesus, I think, embodied the whole range of human emotion and feeling and expression and uh, um, I think we can all uh, identify with Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is, you know, with us now and does all sorts of amazing things. And we can, again, put our, our human face on however we want to interpret the Holy Spirit. I, I really appreciate that answer, the idea of the Holy Spirit opening up, that being, giving us more opportunity for expansive theological um, exploration, I guess. So I, I really appreciate that. We're going to take a break, and uh, afterwards we're going to come back and and talk. Particularly, I want to talk about liturgy um, because I'm very intrigued by your liturgy. So you're listening to Soul Searching uh, with Rabbi Neil Amswich and my guest this evening, Father Robin Dodge from the Church of the Holy Faith in Santa Fe. You're back listening to Soul Searching with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and my guest this evening, Father Robin Dodge from the Church of the Holy Faith in Santa Fe. And we've been having an extraordinary discussion about theology. And and now I want to really look at how theology is spoken about in prayer. And I, I really enjoyed the fact that your community advertises traditional prayer book worship. Um, other faith communities often say free flowing liturgy, very much inclusive, everything you want. Um, but I, for me, there's a real strength in fixed liturgy as well as fluid liturgy. So I wanted to hear from you, particularly because your community advertises openly traditional prayer book worship. What's the joy in that? What's the strength in having fixed liturgy for you? Well, as Episcopalians, we have the heritage of the Book of Common Prayer that's been handed down to us uh, since Cranmer in um, 1549 with the first Book of Common Prayer that um, took the liturgy and uh, somewhat standardized it, at least for the, uh, the church in England. We've had um, several iterations of the prayer book since then, and uh, the most recent one is the 1979 prayer book, which... Um, what unites us as Episcopalians and really as Anglicans is the prayer book, even mm. with uh, different iterations and different editions. Uh, um, because unlike, say, the Roman Catholics who have tradition and the whole sense of the curia saying what um, the dogma is, mm-hmm. and other Protestant traditions have um, various... Uh, written documents, some sort of confession, the Augsburg Confession or uh, the Westminster Confession for Lutherans or Presbyterians. What we say is uh, lex serandi, lex credendi, or what we pray is what we believe and what we believe is what we pray. And so if you Mm -hmm. want to know what Anglican theology or Episcopal theology is, you look to the prayer book and our prayers sort of say it all. So we very much use the prayer book, 
uh, to inform us mm -hmm. in terms of what our theology is, but also then to express that in our liturgy. With the 1979 prayer book, mm -hmm. we had um, the traditional language was retained from the previous 1928 prayer book, but there was so-called contemporary language that was added contemporary as of the 1970s, right. which sounds actually a little stilted uh, now to modern ears because it's not contemporary speech, even how we would speak now. Mm -hmm. Of course, going back to the traditional language, it's pretty much the Elizabethan language, the these and the thous, right. which at the Church of the Holy Faith um, we retain partly because of the beauty of the language. Right. And it really resonates with, with people because it is um, strikingly beautiful, just as if, just as the King James Version of the Bible is thought to be very poetic and perhaps um, more transcendent than some more modern translations. Um, we don't use the King James Version uh, right. because it is, you want people to comprehend what's being read. On the other hand, for the liturgy, um, I would say that the traditional language takes us to a different place. We are not just speaking to one another mm -hmm. um, in the liturgy, we're speaking to God. Mm -hmm. And so we use different language to set us, to make us aware that we are in God's presence and we are actually addressing someone who's, you know, um, different from us. And so that's, that's really interesting for me because immediately a, a, a theological question mark appears. Um, in our Jewish tradition, when we pray the Amidah, the Tefillah, the central prayer of the service, we take three steps back and three steps forward so that we're consciously going back to the same place where we were and saying, now I am standing in God's presence, which I think is similar to what you're saying in terms of the language, being consciously aware um, of, you know, now we are talking to God. But at the same time, in my tradition, we'll use the same language that we've used before. And the statement that we are now, are now in the presence of God means we weren't before or or the, the fact that we have to use different language to talk to God means that before God was with us in a different way. So what does that mean for us in terms of daily life if we have to deliberately step into the presence of God? Does that mean God is not there or just that we are so blind to God's presence? What, what does that mean? I think, I, I think blindness to God's presence is a, is a good way to put it. We're always, of course, in God's presence. And I would say, I mean, the way we use language in the traditional language is as a reminder of the fact that we're in God's presence. It's, it's, a, it's a way to center us, really. And in fact, um, in our liturgical tradition at the Church of the Holy Faith, we take it a step further, and we still have the altar against the wall, mm -hmm. the east wall, which was traditional in many, many churches, um, and uh, through the liturgical reform um, of the Roman Catholics and with Vatican II, most altars came out from the walls so that the priest would face the congregation. Right. We face east once we celebrate as we are leading prayers, as we are talking to God, we face east, and we only face the people when we're talking to the people. And it's actually... A, a wonderful tool to in the service in the mass to know who are we talking to are we talking to one another or are we talking to God and we make that explicit so that people have a sense of um, the fact that the priests in leading worship are in the same 
space right. and the same direction with the people we are all together in lifting our prayers to the Almighty. Is God in one particular direction? No, but it's traditional. <laughs> and we are a traditional church. Uh, <laughs> um, no. So let me ask, uh, uh, because um, for me, the worship is, is a particularly interesting perspective. The, this idea I saw on your website, the, the idea that your worship service, everyone worships together to transcend division. And, and that was a really interesting um, sentence. And I wondered, what, what did you mean by that? What we mean is that despite our differences, we can come to the altar rail and receive the sacrament of Christ's body and blood and recognize the real presence of Christ in the sacrament. And that is the most important thing. It's what unites us rather than focusing on what divides us. The, we can be kneeling next to a person that may have completely political um, different beliefs, uh, all sorts of, even theologically mm -hmm. different mm -hmm. beliefs, but we can come in the presence of God and receive the sacrament of Christ and be united in the body of Christ. And that's, that's what we, we aim for in, uh, in our worship. Does that lead back to what you were saying earlier about salvation, the idea that there are certain rituals that you need to engage in for salvation? You mentioned that um, you, you phrased it really nicely. All things necessary for salvation are in the Bible, I think is what, what you say, but not everything in the, the Bible, Bible is necessary right. for salvation. So, so what is necessary for salvation for you um, or for your community? It's believing in God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus as... Um, the incarnate uh, Son of God who came to earth to, um, to teach us and uh, to save us, which he did on the cross for not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. And we await his um, coming again uh, at the end time to um, unite us with him um, as um, part of the Godhead. I guess for me, the challenge for that is I hold my own religious beliefs and many people in the Interfaith Leadership Alliance hold their differing religious beliefs. Does, is, am I, am, are we not saved at the end? It, why does God need us to believe one particular thing in order for us to be saved? I think God will save whom God will save. And ah. this is an expression... Uh, that resonates for me and for, I would say, most Christians, that this is our understanding of um, the way to salvation. But I certainly would not foreclose how God may, uh, in God's wisdom, uh, plan for the salvation of the world. But it, it, it makes sense to me and it, it feeds me mm. and it draws me closer to, to God and, um, and helps me with the rule of life of how I, I live my life. And, um, and in an expression of love uh, for Christ, love for God, um, love for the Holy Spirit, because we don't want to leave out any part of the Holy Trinity, um, but also um, love of neighbor, of course. And how does that, see, that sentence, God will save who God will save, is a, it's a huge theological statement. It's really important, I think. It's a very, for me, inclusive statement, I would say. Um, what does that mean then to love one's neighbor in that context? 
Um, does it mean to love them as they are or to love them to bring them into a particular belief? What, what does that mean? I would say to love them as they are, to meet them where they are and um, to be able to show um, God's love in Jesus Christ by following Jesus' commandments to, to, um, to help um, our neighbor. Um, and I think that's where we transcend division mm-hmm. um, in terms of, um, of interfaith relations. Uh, we uh, can certainly unite because there is so much need in this world that coming from our different faith perspectives, mm-hmm. we can use our own faith perspectives to work together to alleviate the suffering in the world, to, uh, um, to make systemic change for the better so that God's reign uh, can be ushered in. Uh, and I love the idea of, um, of living it. Um, as opposed to get, you know, trying to bring others to live it. Because I think, I think for me as a rabbi, you know, it's not my place to go out and try to convince people to come into my religion. If they want to, fine, great, you know, always welcome. Um, but for me, it's about living in that presence of God, I guess, however we understand God. Or, or showing, as you put very nicely, showing what, God's, what living with God means to others. Um, so that they see us as emissaries almost, I think. And, and I guess that leads to how do we do that then? Um, what, what, are the, what are the concrete steps? You know, there are, there are so many biblical verses that say, you know, pursue peace or love your neighbor or, whatever, you know, bring in the, the stranger to your camp. There's so many different things. What for you is the core way of of actually acting, because you've described very eloquently the beliefs, but how do you make those beliefs real? What, what are the core things that you do? I come from a Benedictine tradition, and um, one of the charisms of the Benedictines is hospitality. Mm-hmm. And as part of the rule of St. Benedict, um, it's to see the guest, the visitor, the other, see the face of Christ in them and to reflect the Christ, the face of Christ to them. And I think, I mean, that's how I try to live it out in my own life. If I think uh, that, you know, the person in front of me is, has the divine spark, mm-hmm. has the face of Christ, then I need to do all I can to, um, to treat that person as Christ. And hopefully in so doing, it would be a reflection of Christ and the love of Christ uh, to them. Uh, easier said than done. <laughs> you know, I'm human. We're all human. Right. And, you know, we have our demands on our time and our stresses and, and all. But uh, I try to keep that um, ever before me. And one of my prayers every morning as um, I, I'm praying uh, the morning office is um, help me to see Christ and every person I come in contact with today and help me to reflect Christ to them. This has been just so totally fascinating for me. I really want to thank you for coming and sharing your thoughts, not just about theology itself and trying to help me understand um, a differing theological position, but also how to make that theological perspective real in the world and how to, to live it, which I think so many of our faith traditions share in exactly the same words that you're saying, to bring people in and to, to, represent, um, to represent God or, uh, as you say, to, to see the face of the divine spark uh, in the other, I think is, is so important for the work that we do. So thank you so much. 
um, for being here this evening. My pleasure. Thank you. Uh, Our guest this evening has been Father Robin Dodge from the Church of the Holy Faith in Santa Fe. You've been listening to Soul Searching uh, with Rabbi Neil Amswich from Temple Beth Shalom and from the Interfaith Leadership Alliance of Santa Fe. Until we return again in two weeks' time, keep searching.